Rugby Paper Podcast has brought up its half century. Celebrate episode 50, we have an absolute cracker as we preview this year's Six Nations. Joining me and the full house of columnists and Chris Hewitt, Nick Kane and Brendan Gallagher is the first ever special guest on the Rugby Paper Podcast in the form of former England centre and British and Irish Lion, Jerry Guscott. It's a big episode, a big, big episode. Um, it's the 50th episode of the Rugby Paper podcast. So happy happy half century, everyone. It's exactly a year since the start of the Rugby Paper podcast. And for the first time, our lovely faces will be on YouTube. Um, so if you're watching at home, you can now see our faces to your displeasure or pleasure. Um, and to commemorate a year, we've got the very first special guest on the Rugby Paper podcast back with us again. Um, former England centre and British and Irish Lauren, Jerry Guscott. How are you doing, Jerry? I'm all good and looking forward to chatting with um, these rugby experts, many, uh, all of whom I know incredibly well. Uh, so, yeah, it's back to be back in circulation. Well, absolutely. And we do have a full house. We've got Nick Kane, Brendan Gallagher, and I, I'm just going to give a shout out to Chris Hewitt, who is making his first appearance in 2023. How was Down Under, Chris? Um, it was um, It's probably... Uh... Uh, happier in Australia than it is in England at the moment, or in the UK, but that's not saying much. And um, and their rugby union is not actually in the at the level of hassle that we're seeing it uh, at Twickenham or in Cardiff or in Paris. So if it was if it was uh, if it was a Six Nations of uh, rugby governance incompetence, I think that three of the biggest nations around would be in the bottom three places, would they not? that's interesting that's interesting look we'll get to it i don't know whether our listeners are freed from the pleasure of your absence or will be rejoicing at your return but i think england's a little bit happier for having you back chris so <laughs> let's get to it you, you make my paint that you make my point for me <laughs> let's get to it we've got so much to discuss six nations time in a world cup year now the six nations in world cup year is always massive to the, to me this one feels particularly massive and jerry i'm going to come to you straight away we felt on the rugby paper podcast that the autumn asked more questions than it answered certainly from a home nation's perspective perhaps with the exception of ireland it's sort of all happening do you agree that there's so much up in the air and so much that the six nations could potentially address i love the six nations loved watching it as a kid loved playing in it and, and now i really enjoy watching um you can't help but get excited, especially if you manage to get a ticket to the game. The atmosphere around every single stadium, every single country is huge. And, you, 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 yeah, I, I just love it. Um, if I'm a player in Ireland and France, I'm really looking forward to it. If I'm in the other nations, I'm uh, thinking, wow, how are we going to do? And the first game is massively important, as always. The Autumn Internationals, um, I, I thought it put everybody in their place where they are in the pecking order. I, 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 you know, England um, really carried on with poor performances and, and really got results to, to reflect their performance. I think, you know, Wales, we didn't think it could get any worse losing to Italy, but it did. And those two countries have made big changes behind the scenes with, with coaches, new, new coaches on board. Uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing how well France do in this massive year for them. The pressure of being Grand Slam champions, uh, playing at home, the World Cup just around the corner. And Ireland, can they maintain their great form? Will they lose it going into the World Cup? Can they maintain it going through the Six Nations? And I think 
those two at the top and the rest, you know, Italy will always be at the bottom. And uh, the, the three, Wales, England and Scotland, will fight, fight it out amongst themselves for third. We've got everyone's predictions. We'll get to that in a second. But Brendan, I asked you something similar to this this time last year about how competitive the Six Nations would be. I'm not going to ask the same question, but rather Italy shocked Australia and Wales last year. Scotland nearly shocked the All Blacks, came within one point of beating Australia, beat Argentina. Do you think this is the highest standard of Six Nations in your memory and that we've got the top two nations in the world as well as the bottom two being very competitive worldwide? Yeah, I mean, it has to be up there, doesn't it? Um, Like you say, first and second in the world, Italy likely to contest the issue in most of the games, I would have thought. And as Jerry was saying, there's going to be a sort of lump in the middle where there's nothing much to choose between them. World Cup years are funny, though, aren't they? They don't necessarily transfer to the World Cup. I mean, I remember 99, France finished bottom, didn't they? I think it was, was it a whitewash or just one win? A couple of months later, they get to the World Cup final, beat New Zealand in that famous semi-final. And I certainly get the feeling with France this year, for example, that... They're not at full pelt yet. And I don't know, I think it's probably subconscious, but you know, this is the most important year in the careers of all those people involved. They ne- they'll never have a bigger year, bigger ho- tournament, home World Cup. I'm not sure that absolutely flat out. In the autumn, I got the impression that they, they weren't engaging top gear very often. Now, Six Nations is a manic, frantic, exhilarating tournament. I think they're going to have to up it again if they want to contest it you know, go toe-to-toe with Ireland this year. But I still just get the impression we're not getting the, the the full France yet. Why do you think that is? you think that's a personnel type thing or you think it's the nature of peaking for a World Cup? I think it's probably peaking. And these these guys, are you know, a lot as expected on the Toulouse guys were involved all last season and European competition, busy autumn, Six Nations, and then you know, home World Cup. You can only go to the World so many times. I just get the feeling one or two are not soft peddling, but that they're not going and they're not maxing out um, like they would if if, like if 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 it was the World Cup now. So I think that has to be factored into the, the France performance. Uh, also, they're away to Ireland and England, which is never a great year for them. It's always a bit difficult. So them and them and Ireland are undoubtedly the the leaders, uh, the favourites going into the tournament. Um, but like I say, World Cup years can be slightly odd. Six Nations. It can go either way. Nick, do you agree with that? Do you agree that by the end of this tournament, obviously it's an opportunity to stake a claim, but with two of the six countries now in a transformative phase under new coaches as well, it's not going to provide necessarily all the answers, but potentially more enticing questions as well. Well, I think it's going to have to provide a hell of a lot of answers for um, for everybody. Um, and uh, I think that Ireland and France are obviously still well ahead of the game after the autumn. France on 13, uh, 13 match unbeaten streak with a grand slam and a win over South Africa. So I'm I'm not um, convinced that they won't rise to the Six Nations occasion. You know, I mean, it's weird. In, in any assessment of the Six Nations, you always look at, at what the home and away split is. And this time around, the two strongest nations have only got two home games. So that does mean, you know, I mean, France have got to go to Dublin and Twickenham. And uh, I think England, probably by round three, will be a stiffer test um, than they would be earlier on in the tournament. So, uh, yeah, look, I, I, I think that 
you know, Scotland, England, and Wales have got a lot of ground to make up. And I think that France and Ireland are ticking over pretty nicely. And, you know, for teams with only two home games, I still think that they'll finish in one and two. Let's start with England then. Jerry, in your column, I think it came out about a week ago for the rugby paper, maybe a little bit less than that. Um, You spoke about England's flyers on the wing. And I remember this time last year, you mentioned Adam Radwan by name. He's obviously not going to be one of those. But for those who haven't read the column just yet, who are your starting wingers and why are they the key to unlocking England's recently stolting attack? Well, Max Mayne is I've always liked as a player. His skill set is wonderful. He can do everything in my book, I feel. Um, he played as a youngster, I believe, at 10 quite a bit. Um, I think his, he, you can tell just he reads the game so well. He anticipates a lot of what's going on alongside him, behind him and in front. He, he just has good game intellect. And that's so important at this level to be ahead Whilst he's not the quickest, he's certainly by no means the slowest. He can step off both feet. He's got decent acceleration, top-end speed, decent in the tackle, and good under the high ball, which I think the back three is essential that you have that ability to compete for ball and keep the ball when it's coming to you safe. Um, Hassel Collins, I've not seen a great deal of, but you look at the stature of the the, the man, I mean, he's six foot three-ish, got to be 16 stone-ish and, and he runs well and he, he's elusive. And I think we've, the England back line has relied on the heft of Manu Tuolangi for so long. And when he plays at his best, it, you know, he can attract two, sometimes three defenders. What, why that's so crucial is it narrows the defence. It just sucks in players that are on the outside hoping to look after the attack. But because it takes more than one person to take Manu, you you step in and that narrows the defence and needs more space on the outside. I think yeah. Hassel Connors can do exactly the same. And that's always good. So if you think of Manu playing at his best, Hassel Connors coming into the line or even smashing down the wing, plus Freddie Stewart, that, that's some decent half that straightens the line and allows some space for the quicker players. How do you square the argument of, of, of size on the wing at the moment, Jerry, with the fact that... Um, a number of nations, most notably the, the Springboks, weirdly, who have been so obsessed ever, ever since the late 19th century, um, are, are going for small wings. You've got Darcy Graham, you've got the two relatively small wings in Wales, you've got Villiers in France. There, there, there does seem to be, it's slightly counterintuitive, isn't it, in this day and age, that so many small stature wings are making their way in the test. <laughs> I don't think there's any harm in picking the best players. It, it doesn't matter what size they are. If they're playing the best rugby, all-round rugby, then you, you you have to pick them. They're putting their hand up. They're scoring tries. They're beating players. The big thing with wings it's, is that the aerial game is so important. If you do pick a smaller player, they've got to be unbelievably good in the air. Because you lose so much ground there. You think of the amount of box kicking that goes up down the tram lines. And if you've got someone who's five foot seven against someone who's six foot three or four, you're not going to win many. So you're not going to regain the ball a lot. And you're not going to put a lot of pressure on. And you're going to be under pressure under your own ball. It just so happens that a lot of these, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on defense these days. And the wing 
and the fullback positions are so exposed that your tackle success rate is generally in the 70s. Now, if you had that tackle success rate in the 70s in the centre, you would not play for your national team. You can guarantee it. That's such a poor record. as such a poor uh, success rate. But the wings and the fullbacks, everybody understands that exposure. Um, you know, if Radwan was winning high balls, making massive tackles, scoring the tries that he is and beating the defenders he is, he'd be in the team. But the other guys are doing that a little bit more. That's much more important at this level. Chris, while we're on the subject, I think all three of us, Chris, you weren't here at the time when we picked our England 15 um, for the start of the Six Six Nations, we did have Hassel Collins. Would you have Hassel Collins? And if so, who would be your other winger as well? I think it it purely depends on 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 the kind of game England are looking to England are looking to play. I'm I'm slightly surprised that Johnny May's fallen um, as far as he has in the pecking order. Although the bloke that catches my eye at Gloucester repeatedly is is Ollie Thorley, who um who was sort of been sort of bouncing around. The, Do you just want really Gloucester? Do you just want Gloucester to play against Scotland? I mean, you've just yeah, named I, two Gloucester yeah, players. I, <laughs> I want, I want, I want Mike Teague at number eight, and Mike. <laughs> um, I think, I think that will sort out a number of England's problems. They may not, they may not win the game, but it's no. It's interesting because because I, I think May, down the years, has put so much on his on his game, and he goes looking for far more work than he once did. Um, so I was just slightly surprised that he was he was dropped like a stone. Hassel Collins. Um, I think, to my mind, pays the price slightly for being um, in a slightly. I wouldn't. I would hesitate to call London Irish an, an anonymous side, but they're not a headline-grabbing side at the moment. They do play a particularly expansive kind of kind of game, a counter-attacking kind of game, and they do have the players um, capable of doing that. And you, you saw quite a bit of it in the weekend when they played Quinns. So I, I can see I can see the sense of playing of playing a, a, a at least one substantially sized wing. The All Blacks are doing that with Caleb Clark, and and if Hassel Collins has got it, I don't have an issue. I don't have an issue at all actually with um with with that selection. I I think um I, I it would encourage me actually if Steve Borthwick was adventurous in a couple of positions because that would that would tell us that Steve is as um uh, a more imaginative streak than many people credit him with. I suspect Bordwick is an extremely good selector or will have the has the makings of being an extremely good selector. If he wants to go left field and give a very inexperienced player a, a run in the Kolkata Cup match first up, good on him. I don't have a problem at all. As far as the other wing is concerned, I wonder about Maidens defensively at times. But I do I do think he's one of those players he's a he's a bit of a, a sort of Chris Ashton with brains um in a way that Damian Penno is a Chris Ashton with brains. I think his his support play, his ability to get on people's shoulders, read lines from far out, is uh, is extremely valuable. And I do think I do think there's something about him going forward. Whether he's good enough in defence under pressure, I think we'll probably find out. While we're on the back line, in your England back line, in your column again, Joe, I'll refer to that again. You had Henry Slade at thirteen. Henry Slade's now obviously been ruled out with injury. Who comes in then? Obviously, we've got the ever impending conundrum of the Smith Farrell axis, which, you know, we've had a few conversations in the past few weeks about that to say that that shouldn't come to the fore again. Jerry, do you think that could ever work? And if not, who's your 13, presuming you're keeping Manu at 12? I've been um 
made to sound and look a fool. The amount of times I said that the Farrell-Ford combination just doesn't work, but their results in the past have proven otherwise. It just, the balance of it just doesn't seem right to me. And I don't think teams have exploited what I see as a weakness is that they're both slow or they were slow. So for me, the Smith-Farrell axis doesn't work because Farrell is not an out-and-out inside centre. He doesn't play there enough. He doesn't run like an inside centre. He doesn't look like an inside centre. He doesn't understand the game and the purpose of an inside centre. He's an adequate uh, receiver, more than adequate, but in that position, he's not the boss. The 10 generally the boss of the game. And that's where I feel you get the best out of Owen Farrell is playing him at 10 and only on, at 10. So even if Smith was on the bench, don't move Owen into inside centre and bring on Marcus because you, you just, there's no point, there's nothing for the forwards to focus on because you never see Owen run that line that a man who can run or a Jamie Roberts used to run or even a Will Carnick going back in time used to run. It's just not in his nature. And I think England performed best with that target for a forward or a number of forwards to hit. So I would play uh, Farrell at 10, Manu at uh, 12. I'd actually go for Joe Marchant at 13. I think Ollie Lawrence has been playing well at Bath, but his performances for England, and you can make up a number of, Oh, sorry, you could come up with a number of reasons why, but only he knows why. He can't. He hasn't been able to perform for as well as he did for, at Worcester and, has he, and he has been at Bath at the highest level. So I just think Marchant has more experience. I think he, he's better outside centre. The, the, the big challenge is to fill the slade void of defence. Now, Henry's not the biggest tackler, but he understands that outside centre role brilliantly. That you, you stop that outside space being used. You, you just you have to be an intelligent defender. And I think he's you know that's what he's born known as rather than attacking and scoring tries. But uh, I would I would go for Margin just I think he's just got that bit more experience at that level uh, and uh, at, at outside centre. It's worth saying that we're recording on a Tuesday, on the Tuesday leading up to the Six Nations, and the England team isn't out. Guys, I've read, and these are obviously not corroborated sources, that Farrell and Smith Axis will probably be happening again. But I don't know if Nick, Chris, Brendan, you guys have heard any different. I certainly haven't heard any different, but it's bewildering. Somebody did a Twitter yesterday, or was it two days ago, before Slade? and Kelly withdrew. And there's something like 26 different combinations that you could theoretically do at sort of 10, 12, 13. And only Steve Borthwick knows what he wants. Um, in an ideal world, I think you, it's either Farrell or Smith at 10, but I like, I think they might go with Farrell at 12. He's not an out-and-out world-class 12, but he's pretty good. And at the moment, I think, you know, I think England got a slight crisis in midfield. They don't really know... Um, exactly what they want. They've got inexperienced players. And like I, I don't know how Borthwick views Ollie Lawrence. Ollie, Ollie Lawrence is never a 12. We've had this conversation before. I, I've watched him since he was 15. He's an out-and-out 13. He's got quick feet. He's fast. He's got hands. He's not Manu. He doesn't truck it up. And that's where Eddie Jones went completely wrong with him. He just doesn't truck it up. And he doesn't want the ball to truck it up. He wants a little bit of space. Whether they're going to be brave enough to pick him at 13 with Farrell at, at 12... See, Joe Marchant, why would you pick him in the centre? You know, he, he, you know, he's a very good, versatile back. 
And yeah, he's got them. He looked like he's got the makings of a thirteen, but he played not a great deal of rugby there. So you know, do you, do you pitch him in ahead of somebody like Lawrence, who is a centre? I think he's an outside centre, a thirteen, but he has been picked as a twelve. But at least he plays there week in, week out. So, uh, like I was saying, we don't know what Steve Borthwick is thinking. He might be absolutely nailed on in his own mind what he wants, and we might be disappearing up our own backside here trying to come up with a combination, and he already knows it, and it's not yeah. a problem. We talk we talk about, you know, the confusion in midfield. I mean, if they continue with the, um, with the, Fa <clears throat> the Farrell-Smith experiment and it doesn't work again, they're getting themselves in deeper and deeper water. And... You know, I think that we saw enough in the autumn to know that it's it's not something I think that at the beginning of a Six Nations, you want to be betting in. If you're going on a tour or something like that, then maybe. But um, I, I sort of, um, I, I agree with Jerry. I think that it's got to be, uh, you know, Farrell's been playing very well at 10. It's got to be Farrell at 10 or Smith at 10. You know, and that, it's not just Borthwick. You know, he's bought in Nick Evans. And uh, Nick Evans presumably will will have a a say in in what he thinks. He's already sort of hedged and said that he thinks that almost anything can work. So um, it <laughs> remains to be seen what uh, what happens. But you know the idea that you know that Steve Borthwick <laughs> is going to be an outstanding selector. Well, he's certainly got a few conundrums that are going to be a measure of that. I think um, Brendan makes a compelling point about Marchant and what different places, uh, positions he's played, and he's more, you know, he's versatile, he's a bit of a utility, and, you know, I would be swayed by that. I just look at Ollie Lawrence and I wonder about his defence, and I just think a quicker person, and I think Marchant's probably quicker than uh, Lawrence, fares better in, in that role. I think one thing, though that is, I think, apparently clear to me, is that without a dominant pack, when you play a lightweight 12, you are relying on that pack being dominant. And if they're not dominant, you will go sideways because you have no direct punch to narrow that defence and get the defence interested, unless you've got two other monster wings that can, that can attract the defence. So an England haven't been dominant up front. Their ball carrying hasn't been, they've not been winning, winning um, collisions. They've not been creating much momentum. If their pack isn't doing it, Owen Farrell cannot do it from 12. Uh, you, you'd have to rely on Hassel Collins coming in, Stewart coming in. Um, and I, it just it, You're asking them to do something that they don't ordinarily do week in, week out. You're asking Farrell to do something he doesn't do week in, week out. And that's where the problems and the challenges come. You, you just, I just don't think it's fair when you've got enough talent there uh, to, to do the job properly. Stick, Owen is a world-class 10. He's a blinning average, very, very average 12. When you, when you talk about the, um, the, the, the dominance of the pack and, and how that, that connects to what you can and cannot do with certain personnel um, in the threes, how should mind back to 2015, Jerry, um, uh, uh, the Wallabies got to a World Cup final, which, which for 10 minutes and a quarter of an hour, they looked as hell they might even win the thing, um, even though the, the All Blacks got away from them in the end. They played, they played Gitto at 12, who was who was small, but he, he was a 10, effectively. And they didn't have, 
Crikey, heaven knows the Wallabies didn't have a dominant pack. But they had a pretty big, they had they a pretty had big outside centre whose name was Kuradrani. Well, that's my point about Manu Suolangi being a thirteen. I think you what you what you have here though is a culture and a way of playing. You could pick a, a New Zealand five foot seven, five foot eight centre who probably weighs fourteen stone, um, soaking wet. I bet he can run an awesome line from twelve. He just knows how to run that line. Owen Farrell doesn't. Yeah. Um, Matt Gitto can run that line because he's a footballer and he's quick. He's got the pace where Farrell hasn't got anywhere near that pace and that direct running. And that's why he will not ever create momentum from that because he's not quick enough off the mark and he's not a destructive runner. Gitto has come from a culture. It's abrasive. It's confrontational. We're not from that culture. So, so I, I, I mean, I think I think that's a really good point, Jerry. Actually, and you, you, if I was making an argument, you've just destroyed it. But I, I mean, you, you you can use an example, can't you, of, of Geordie Barrett, who a year ago no one would have thought he was an inside centre, and suddenly he's a kicking, passing, running, um, call making inside centre, which looks as though he might be absolutely transformative for the All Black backline. Well, you know, he's a Kiwi who's all-round game and skill set would be superior to many players currently playing international rugby. And in fact, he's quite robotic. You know, he's a punchy piston runner. He's not, he doesn't glide. He's very direct, uh, um, abrasive, confrontational. But, you know, he's got, what is he, six foot three and probably about 15 and a half, 16 stone to go with it. So <laughs> he's good at fullback, wing, outside centre, inside centre. He could probably play fly half. Yeah, back row. Yeah. I mean, just to lob a, uh, a another element into it is that on what we've seen so far this season, Manu, where, whether he's picked at 12 or 13, and I'd, I'd rather see him uh, picked at 12, I must admit, um, that he he's got a lot of headway to make up. He's had a pretty quiet season. So, you know, we're going into a game where, you know, they, they need him to fire, you know, against the Scots. There's no question that England need that target, man. They need, they need to get on the front foot. Sorry. Didn't Brian O'Driscoll say he's, um, he, he's finished in English and move on? I don't know. Um, it, it, it kind of amazes me sometimes that you have that, Tamani, your disposal. I said it in the column before about Thok and the singer. Those guys should be carrying the ball 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 times in a game. And if they're not, there's something wrong with your game plan. Massively wrong with it. And after those carries, if they're not being effective after a few games, move on to the next player in line <coughs> because they're not doing the job you want them to do and the job that they're best at because they're almost in games and you wouldn't know that they played yet. They're some of the biggest players on the field who are not having an impact. Make the change. It's also worth pointing out just on Farrell that he, in the end, and some of these games might be tight, he's a 90% goal kicker. We're not saying <laughs> drop him, mate. No. <laughs> yeah, he's a 90% kicker at 10 or at 12. It doesn't matter what shirt number's on his back, does it? Um, which, is, I, which is a big old thing and it gets even bigger at World Cups. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, I think the Manu thing is obviously interesting and that's a route we've gone down um, a lot in the past. I think the way he's playing, Nick, and maybe you agree with this, it's almost like he's 
holding back or he's yeah. being wrapped in cotton wool or, yeah. you know, it's just a get through to the World Cup. And that was what his surgery back in la- back last summer was reflective of for me was the goal is to get Manu to the World Cup, even if you have to mummify him to do it. Yeah, I'd, I have to say that I, I, I sort of think <laughs> England have got have got sort of a shortage in of big carriers in midfield, but I sort of think that the idea that you can you can cotton wool somebody through to a World Cup <laughs> just it doesn't make any sense to me. You know, I mean, it, this is the preparation for the World Cup. These are the games that that are telling England their direction of travel, and if he's going to be part of that direction of travel, I'd say he needs to be part of it now. The, the All Blacks took the cotton wool option in 2007 and got knocked out in the quarterfinals, I seem to remember. Yeah. They kept all their players, I mean, all of the All Blacks, out of the big games in the run-up to that tournament. And they wanted them well-rested. And they, they had plenty of rest for the, for the tournament after the quarterfinal, that was for sure, because they didn't have anything else to do. Yeah. I mean, do you ever think that winning the World Cup is actually just completely a personnel issue? It's not, is it? It's... It's the cumulative production of game after game, performance after performance, putting together integral systems. So, no, I agree with you there, Chris. Um, Now, Brendan, one more thing on England, and that's that they have two Twickenham games to start, Scotland and Italy. We've been pretty um, up in the air about the direction England are moving in, but in terms of two trial games for Steve Borthwick, it's probably the best start you could ask for, no? It's a pretty useful start, although it does need to be pointed out that Scotland have only lost once in the last five matches against England. That they they're pretty good against England at the moment, so that's a banana skin at home to Scotland. Um, at the start of the Eddie Jones regime, you rather dismiss Scotland. Uh, I don't think you know Scotland are very erratic, but you don't dismiss them anymore. They always have a big performance around just around the corner. Italy at home should be one of the more comfortable matches if it goes well against Scotland. So, yeah, if Steve Borthwick gets away to those two wins, England are looking at potentially quite a decent season. Um, that's not a bad start at all for them. But beware Scotland. I mean, um, <laughs> as ever, they'll be up for it. And that, that is a tricky one for England. And it's a Scotland with Finn Russell very much back in the fold now. Finn has come out and said that his relationship with Gregor Townsend is better than it's ever been. Jerry, do you believe that? I want to believe it. Um you look at the way Finn has played, and I believe there's a growing maturity in his game, the way he's not always looking for this miracle pass. He's not always looking to beat players. Um, I, I feel his frustration a little bit because, in a way, he's coming from his club side to an international side that the back line might not quite be as good as what he's used to playing and having the talent around him. So... That's an interesting point, but I I feel mentally he's he's switched. I think um, he he went on that Lions tour. He, he wasn't he wasn't the first choice, and I think he came on in that or started in that third test and and made some differences. And I think from there he's gone on and realised that he doesn't have to do the same thing all the time and be this maverick and attack. It's good to the point. You've got to guide your team into the right positions to uh, to be able to score. I still think he's got a huge value. I, th- I think, uh, you know, again, he's not the quickest, but he, he can just get his body in the right positions and his legs can take him where he, he needs to go. So I think um, I think he I think he'll perform well. Do, do, do you think um, uh, that we, with, with Finn, one of the reasons he 
I mean, it, the 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 decreasing maverick levels um, um, to come up with a really mangled English sentence, um, maybe to do with maturity, just understanding his own game a little bit more, etc. But there must have been a time, probably before Darcy Graham, who's sadly injured and, and, and won't be playing, as, as I understand it, at Twickenham and Van der Merwe on the other wing. They're pretty potent in their very different ways. But there must have been times when Finn would have looked around that Scottish back line, um, leaving aside Stuart Hogg, but he's down there at fullback and thinking, well, if it ain't me, I can't see who's going to do anything here. I mean, we're industrious. We work really, really hard. But in terms of the spark of creativity, um, it was Finn and nothing for a long time, wasn't it? Yeah, but I think he's come to realise now, particularly with the results against England, how they've kind of, you know, they... They've won their three games. They can't seem to win four. But I think that's all part of his learning curve. We all, you know, we all want to continue to learn about this game. And it's realising then, I think you're right, Chris, that he, had, he felt he had to do too much or had to do everything. But now when you've got Lions alongside you, they, they're going to be calling for the ball more. You know, they're going to actually be calming Finn down and probably saying, hey, look, mate, you do this. We can do what you used to do between us and I think there's enough talent throughout that back line uh, to, 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 that means that Finn doesn't have to do everything he just has to create the space in that tight area that allows those runners that you mentioned uh, to to exploit trust, yeah. trust is a big thing in rugby isn't it it's everything you, you know a good side has it all over from, from 1 to 23 including the coaches and yeah that's a big part of what Borto and Sinfield will be trying to create in that England squad. You get that. You can take a team a long way. You don't have to be the most talented. That will get you a long way. Trust. A lot of talent in that Scottish backline, but that injury of Tadasi Graham is sort of standing out like a sore thumb. Who comes in, in everyone's opinion, this is a question to the floor. We've obviously got the narrative of um, Roy McConaughey who has switched nationalities now that he hasn't played for England in three years. Nick, I'll come to you. Who Would you bring him in on the wing or would you bring someone else more in the Darcy Graham mould? Um, no, I don't think I would bring him in. Um, I think that they, they, Sean Maitland's been chosen. So, you know, he's uh, he's very obviously very experienced, still managing to do things for um, for Saracens. Hugh Jones is there knocking around and he's always, you know, I mean, we we saw when he was down at Harlequins last season, he's always dangerous. So I'm not sure that they've got nobody. Um, Chris Harris has played on the wing. I wouldn't expect him to be there because um, he's too important for them in defence at, at centre. Uh, but, um, I, you know, I mean, the, uh, the, the, the other... I just, I just think you know, Van der Merwe. If you're talking about players who who do damage to England every time they, you know, they he's played for them, it's him, and and Russell. The two of them are the two people who've been consistently the ones when England have gone down the gurgler against the Scots. Um, they've been the guys who've been the uh, who've been pulling the strings or finishing the strings. So uh, yeah. I suppose Kinghorn Kinghorn's a bloke who's played on the wing as well. They've got lots of of, of Utes, if you like, who who could play on the wing. Uh, they've got a guy called uh, it's Carl Stain, another South African yeah. who, who yeah. played played there last season. So they've got, you know, they've got options. They've got options, and um, I, I, you know, I mean, I've, I I I thought when uh, Edinburgh played against um, 
against Saracens and beat them, you saw that Scotland are beginning to build depth. And somebody that we haven't mentioned, who I think, you know, obviously he's the captain of the side, very important, and he's not he's not a winger, is um, but it's uh, Jamie Ritchie. You know, I mean, I think that he's one of those one of those guys who who does drive them, and they need those sorts of gritty, slightly niggly figures who 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 get them up. And um, I, I think that they'll be up for this game. He's all sharp edges, isn't he, um, Richie? I, I, I think Richie could have played could have played in that Scotland back row up at Murrayfield in 1990, Jer, when you um, when you when you scored a glorious try uh, that resulted in um, not quite what you wanted. But I mean, he's he to me, he's like a modern day Finley Calder, John Jeffrey type bloke. He must be an absolute mare to play against. Yeah, he's, he's out of that mold. We need to move on for time, but I should say that the Rugby Paper Predictions League is back for the Six Nations. And just to run down, we've got a full house of England wins for the prediction for this game, but we're all keeping it to within 10 points with Chris Hewitt, 22-20 being the closest of the game. So play along at home, check the Rugby Paper website if you want to find out how the Predictions League works and see how you get along against our columnists and obviously our team of special guests. I didn't know they were going to be made public, actually. I mean, for somebody who finished second in a one-horse race on many, many occasions, um, I am entirely useless. So uh, uh, if you do read it, treat it as, a, as an exercise in irony. Well, you're not going to thank me for what I'm about to make public, Chris. Um, Wales versus Ireland. Uh, you've predicted a Wales win. So talk us through that one. First game up, um, a Gatland-Banks Cardiff in full zoo mode. Um, it will be loud. Um, well, Wales have, have gone through a rotten time. I mean, on and off the field. Heaven knows it's been a it's been a rocky old ride. Um, I just think that that first up, Ireland. Uh, they, I mean, they're going to be pretty fully loaded. I mean, Henshaw's missing, but they they're going to come fully loaded. But I just, I think Wales are better than they were under Wayne Pivak. I think that I like the look of their back row. I think Jack Morgan is a terrific prospect. I think that they will get amongst them. Gatland is very, very good at pressing the right buttons on a one-off occasion. Uh, I just think, I, I'm not saying that I would have gone for a Wales win if it had been the last game in the tournament, but first up, I think uh, there'll be a bit of fun and games down there. <coughs> It'll be much, much closer than people imagine, and it wouldn't amaze me if Wales won that game. Well, thank you for being a differential. I'll come to you, Jerry, as a sort of antidote to that. You've got Ireland by 26 points in your prediction. Um, so somewhat the other end of the spectrum. Um, <laughs> talk us through that narrative then as well. well. I've just seen the Welsh side. They don't look that bad. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I'm just going that I, I just can't get over I can't get over how good a side Ireland are. I think by far they're the most intelligent team in the Six Nations. They just know each other so well. Farrell's gone firing a bit like I, I guess Porto was hoping Sinfield's going to do for England, but Farrell just gets the best out of those players, and if you mix that with the, the intelligent rugby brains that they have. I mean, I think De Fleer could take on a, most teams back row on his own. He's everywhere, doing everything. He's scoring tries, he's making tackles, he's jackling ball. He is, you know, 
one of the best players in the world. I mean, it's just incredible. He's amazing. And I think, you know, their weak link might be Sexton, but I think how long have people been saying that? Probably saying he's a bit of a paper bag waiting to be popped, burst, ripped for the last few seasons because we see him down from time to time, taking a heavy knock, taking a count of 10, 20, 30. Um, but he's resilient and he, there'll be no one more enthused to want to put Ireland in a real special place that enables them to go on and be one of the favourites to win the World Cup and possibly win it. So I just think they're too good. They're too well organised. They've got the player for player. They're so much better. And I think they're, they're now delivering what is expected of them. And I don't expect them to stop. Are you predicting an Irish Grand Slam then, Jerry? No, it's only week one. Come on, steady on. Um, I think, you know, it's between France and Ireland for me. I, I think there's, we've all mentioned already, there's a big gap we feel between, I feel between Ireland and France and then down to England, Scotland and Wales um, and then down to down to Italy. There's a level, they're, just, they're, they're probably two tiers above what uh, England, Scotland and Wales are. Look, and you throw in the, Throw in the mix what the Six Nations has been about. At some stage, quality has got to come to the top. And the two best teams are Ireland and France. And the other four have got to grow in and try and catch up. And it's a long way to catch up. I certainly can't see Ireland losing in Dublin. That's for sure. I don't think they lose. I don't think they lose there. Mm. I've got them down to lose to France in Dublin. So I was just about to say, I think I remembered someone out there, Dan. Nick, we'll I won't. See. I'll make you talk us through that in a in a in a week or so's time. How about yeah. that? Um, but no, Jerry, I only asked you that because Brendan has predicted an Irish Grand Slam. All of our predictions are already submitted, so there's no going back back from our point of Can view. Can I just say on my predictions, by the way, guys? I got sent a bottle of uh, Donegal whiskey from a friend, and I was sampling it the night I did this, the uh, <laughs> predictions, and it got a bit weird at the end. I've actually got uh, Wales having a whitewash and, and Italy finishing above them. What Wales are the enigma. I mean, they're like the old France. You don't know what Wales is going to turn up. Um, they either win the championship or Grand Slam or finish fifth. Historically, that's what they do. So this first match is massive. If they win it, they'll have a good season. If they lose, and I expect them to lose narrowly, they could have a very tough season. Um, I can see them losing three or four matches. And on the theory that I think Italy will win one match this season, I've, and I think they will target Wales at home, um, I have, this was the, the logic seeping through the whiskey. I've got Italy beating Wales at home towards the end of the tournament and maybe jumping above and not finishing last for once. But um, it's a very old Wales team. Was it 12, 12 of the 23 over 30? Uh, eight of that squad played in the 2012 Six Nations. You know, it'll either work spectacularly well under Gatland and it'll be another sort of miracle season or it's going to be a very, very tough season. There's going to be no in-between with Wales this season. Yeah, I was going to say there's in the Predictions League and obviously I've got access to all the predictions that the public don't yet have, but no team has divided quite like Wales has. Um, Obviously, Chris has got Wales beating Ireland, then Brendan's got Italy beating Wales, then Nick's got Wales beating England. So <laughs> if all of them come through, then that, that's that's a hell of a story um, for Wales throughout the tournament. But yeah, like you said, 10 players with 50 caps or more, three with 100 or more, and then one with a 150 or more. I guess, Nick, there's the possibility that, you know, 
Welsh rugby has just come full circle and then that could either mean that in a very good way, i.e. the peak of the Gatland era, or a very bad way in that if you're not moving forwards, you're moving backwards. I don't see it being a disastrous season. I don't think that it's going to be a, a Wales whitewash. And I don't think that Italy will beat them in Rome. Um, I think that Italy have improved. There's no question about that, that they've improved. But whether they've made enough to get off that, um, to get out of that wooden spoon slot is another question. I think with with Wales, the I mean, I do find it strange that they keep going back to Alan Wynn. I think that, you know, if we're talking about, you know, we talked about, you know, or somebody mentioned that Brian O'Driscoll said maybe time for England to move on from Tuilagi. I certainly think that um, if Alan Wynn is still the, you know, one of the, the, the two best test locks, um, then, you know, you can continue to pick him. But I'm not sure that uh, that has been the case. He played. I think he'd have been on the bench, Nick, wouldn't he, if Rowlands had been fit? Yeah, yeah. But you know, I mean, I just, I, I just, I'm not, I'm not convinced that Wales are going to be anybody's uh, whipping boys in this. I think that they've got enough good players um, to, you know, to win home games. And um, I, if you look at the Wales games against England recently, whether it's been Gatland or Pivac, whomever, there's very little in them, and it's tended to go with home advantage. So that's why I've gone. Uh, for Wales in that. Um, you can tell the tenor, can't you, in advance of the Wales team talks, because Warren Gatland has already said this Netflix documentary fly under all things a bad idea because you can't say what you really want to say about other countries. That's an interesting approach, I think. <laughs> oh, hopefully he doesn't pay any mind and just carries on. Twelve's a problem position for Wales, isn't it? And they have picked, Jerry, you, you said you've just seen a team. They picked Joe Hawkins at 12, 20 years old. Brendan, why don't I come to you with that question then? Nick Tompkins is not a very Warren Gatland type 12, is he? I.e., you know, he doesn't fit the Jamie Roberts. He's abrasive, but he's obviously not as big as Jamie Roberts. Doesn't give you that go forward. Who would be your 12? I, I think I read in Wales Online that um, George North could potentially be the key and move inside to 12. And, you know, Jamie Roberts was initially a fullback slash wing and then moved further inside. Do you think that could work? And if not, who would be your 12? I think Gatlin would, he shouldn't ignore him. He's a player who makes Wales tick when he's playing well. And he doesn't quite fit the mould, I'll give you that. Um, but I mean, I wish Tompkins had, had stuck with England. I think he could be doing a job for England right now. Um, so... Yeah, you've got the option of moving a big unit in, haven't you? And Wales have never been frightened of doing that. And they might come round to it. But, I mean, Hawkins was very good for the under-20s last year. He, he is a talent. Um, Ospreys are going well. Why not? I mean, let, let's, let's give it a go. But we're, we're, I don't think Gatlin will hesitate to make a big change there if it's not working. The, the massive question for Gatlin, surely, is how he how he gets the best out of this Welsh side with the limitations in certain positions that it has without Sean Edwards. That's that's the big thing. I mean, if there's a massive bridge for Warren to cross at, in test-level coaching, is to do it without um, without Sean, who, who meant an enormous amount to that Welsh team. And, you know, we can see what he's done in France. So that's the big bridge for him to cross, I think. I think Wales suffer from the same problem as England and possibly Scotland. That their forwards just aren't punchy enough. So you can have an amazing back line but they're not 
punchy. They're not winning enough collisions. You, you look, guys. We all watch the game. South Africa are brutes. They just muscle themselves over the game line, but they run with some some conviction. New Zealand can be small, but they just know how to run and they run at space and take the weaker spot. Um, Aussies are pretty good footballers, so again, they can choose their spot. We, when you've got this side, Wales and, and England, they're packed. They they've got to play. That to get dominant and to win collisions, they've got to play each player. If you score them out of ten, they've got to be playing a minimum of seven. But you want that minimum to be eight for them to have any kind of momentum, any kind of dominance, and any kind of opportunity to to produce quick ball. Quick ball wins your games. If if you haven't got forwards who win collisions, you're you're not going to win games. You're always going to be under pressure, and you're always going to be kicking. Always. And I look at this Welsh pack, and you look, the reason why they haven't won games is because their pack, I mean, their pack isn't playing well. Any side that are losing games, their packs aren't playing well. They're just not pokey enough, punchy enough, abrasive enough. Um, everyone can win a scrum. Everyone, well, Wales might struggle to even win liners. But, um, <laughs> you know, these, these are elementary parts of the game that they practice day in, day out. It's the outside, it's the breakdown, it's what you do off that, it's what you create, how you carry ball aggressively into contact to win the collision. And this pack hasn't been doing it, and maybe Gatland can get them to start doing it. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one, because although it's a, it is a, a level down, I think, the Ospreys have made an impact in the European Cup that none of the Welsh regions have, I don't think, for a while. And he's picked quite a few of those Ospreys players. And one bloke who will give them that go forward, we've touched on him a bit earlier on, is this kid, uh, Jack Morgan. Tipperick is also playing, you know, playing extremely well. I, I think you're probably right about the front five forwards because they don't have the same, you know, Ken Owens is now, he certainly had it in the past, but whether he's still got it, you know, in terms of, of carrying abilities, another question. But um, they do have some, you, you know, I mean, Jack Morgan's certainly somebody and the guy at uh, at, at uh, Exeter, uh, Chris Chizuna, if he gets an opportunity as well, you know, I mean, these are guys who can carry. So um, I think that... Matt David Jenkins, is, is, he's quite lean, but he's on the bench, isn't he? Um, yeah. When he gets the ball, he makes good yardage. He really, you know, he's quick and he's 17 stone. He's not particularly muscular, but he makes good yardage. And Gatland, also, since, he, since he's been around since 1953, it, it's asking a bit much. But there's, it's not impossible that Falatau will stream together three or four extraordinary games. We're asking these players, we're talking about these players at their very best, and which they've struggled to show us, or anyone, in the last couple of seasons. So you're talking about reincarnation. Uh, they might do it for one or two games. You can't see them producing it at, that, at this age that they most of them are for five games in the Six Nations and then carry that on to three warm-up games in a World Cup. Um, you know, we're, we're, I think we're reminiscing a little bit here. Um, yeah, we're, we're, reminiscing, we're reminiscing about Gatlin's previous, about Gatlin's previous um, incarnation down there, aren't we? That, that was the thing. I mean, I mean, he he maximised the sum of their parts. No one's going to dispute what Gatlin can produce and what he's done. His track record says he's a winner. And I'm not, by any means, any stretch of imagination, saying Wales are out of this. I just don't <laughs> see them being able to be competitive for five games in, in the Six Nations. Uh, not 
on what they've shown us. No, not five games. I, I'd agree with that, but I certainly think that they'll be. Uh, I, I think they'll be competitive, and I think that they're going to that they're going to win. Gatlin's always had had the ability to blend teams to bring bring players through, and I think that he'll start to bring some players through. And as I've, I've, I've mentioned, I think that you know if you if we if we look out for a forward um, to make an impact during this Six Nations, I think Jack Morgan will certainly be one of them. And, um, you know, but they probably need more. There's no question about that. And I'm sure that he'll be uh, he'll be scouring everywhere to see whether he can uh, he can unearth a few more as well. And they only got they've only got two games at home, I think. Uh, Yeah. So that makes it even tougher for them. Yeah. Well, for this weekend, we've got three Arden wins and one Wales win in our set of predictions oh sorry three no four Arden wins and one Wales win um in our predictions so well yeah Cardiff will be bubbling and obviously with recent allegations in the Welsh Rugby Union which we won't go into Welsh Rugby is in need of an upwards turn let's move on finally to France Italy France have had a couple of injuries Brendan haven't they uh Jonathan Dante and to me, the changes seem fairly clear there. Fiku moves to 12 and Mofanam goes to 13. Cameron Wilkie is a little bit more difficult. Who comes into the road, do you think? Well, that is offset by the fact that Vilemza is now fit again. So I think he, he's back in the pack. Um, and Wilkie hasn't been playing that well at club level, although I think he probably is a test beast uh, more than anything. Um, France is interesting. I think that beat Italy. Uh Italy sometimes play pretty well against France. They've actually got two wins against them in the Six Nations, and they tend not to roll over too much against the French. First up in Rome, I think there'll be a big, enthusiastic crowd. I can see Italy giving it a good old rattle and maybe scoring a couple of good tries, but, you know, France have got a mighty outfit. They'll weather the storm and and pull away, I'm sure. But, no, that'll be interesting. Uh, I'm looking forward to see... And Capuzio again, see if he's still got the magic touch. And just to mention for another Italian lad, get his name right, Tommaso um, Menoncello, who actually this time last year got a very good try against France in Paris. He pulled it down, yeah. you remember, way out wide, pulled it down and got the touchdown somehow. He got a couple of belters for Benedon against Stad the other day. I saw some quotes from Paul Gustard saying he was one of the biggest talents he's ever worked with. And he's still only 20. So, you know, I don't think they're going to be a one-man show behind the scrum. Uh, I think Minotzi's coming back to form and fitness. He might get a start. Uh, Tommaso Allen, our friend from the podcast, is not going too badly at Quinns. Uh, he might have a good comeback season. Uh, so I've got hopes for Italy, but I don't think they'll be starting with a win against the French. The the, the big lift for, for Italy is the fact that Garbisi, who I think is, to my mind, is the best is the best outside half they've had since Dominguez, is suddenly back in the squad and whether he plays this weekend, I don't know. He's been injured, but the the word from Italy is that he's proved his fitness, so to speak, whether he's proved it to the extent that he starts. I don't know, but that'll be a big lift for them, actually. And also, I think that Kieran Crowley's doing a brilliant job there. I mean, he, you know, he, he kept Canada's head above water to a degree for a long, long time when they have nothing really to work for him to work with. There's a lot more for him to work with in Italy. Yeah. But I don't expect them to beat France. France have got five or six players who've been in a conversation for a World 15 at the moment. I mean, I was going to say, you know, we talk about, we were talking about who replaces Wokey. Well, I can think of, um, you know, they've got this bloke, Thibaut Flamont, who, yeah. um, who was at Loughborough and then at Wasp for a bit, I think. And I, 
I reckon, you know, I mean, just in terms of ability, speed around the field for a lock, size, athleticism, and then Sekulu, Sekou Makalu, who, who who runs as fast as most wing plays in well, the back yeah. row. They, 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 on the wing. Play on the wing. they both have Wocky qualities, don't they? But both of the players you've mentioned. Yeah. I mean, what Wocky is an extraordinary athlete. I think I mean I think he could be extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. But, yeah, it's, um, but I, I, I don't think it, they'll necessarily miss him as horrendously as they would if he pulled out of the World Cup. Let's. I'm going to put everyone on the spot a little bit just to, just before we wrap up. And I would like a tournament winner prediction, a one-to-watch prediction, and a shock of the tournament prediction. I'm going to come to Nick first. Thought you were going to say that. What do we want? We want to, we, <laughs> you know we me want so to, well. We want a winner. We want a winner first. Okay. Yeah, uh, winner. Winner. Uh, Ireland. Um, not with a Grand Slam, but uh, yeah, on points. Yeah. Next one. What was it? One to watch. A player. One to watch. Not a team. Um. Yeah. Okay. I've mentioned him already. Jack Morgan. I'd say one to watch definitely. And shock of the tournament. Shock of the tournament. Well, if you consider. Uh, France winning in Ireland, France winning in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> we'll stick with that. Uh, Jerry, can I come to you next? Winners, I would go with France. The player to watch, um, I will go with Oli Hassel Collins. I think uh, young man's going to be very expressive and I, I think he shakes for the ball and I think if he gets it enough, he'll have a, a decent impact. Uh I, there are no shocks. I don't, I don't think that the shock would be if Italy beat anybody other than Wales. Chris? I think um, I think both Ireland and France win four games. Um, I think Ireland will probably sneak it on a on a bonus point. I, I, I think they, they might beat France at home more comfortably than Wales beat Ireland in Cardiff on Saturday, uh, which, of course, is my shock result, by the way. So um, I've answered two questions in a single sentence there. And uh, my player to watch, uh, I think, I think will probably be uh, Alan Wynne-Jones. Could go far. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, Brendan, wrap us up. Um, well, I've, I've gone for Ireland um, for the Grand Slam. Uh I sort of surprised myself at the end of doing these predictions and added it up. And I only have to drink a bottle of Wales were bottom. <laughs> uh, one to watch. Uh, he's been a good player for two or three years. He doesn't get the recognition. Italy's second row, Federico Ruzza. He ought to be a number eight. He's a hell of an athlete. He wins all their line out ball. Without him, Italy are absolutely sunk. Great player. Look out for Luke Crosby. Now, he's not even a guaranteed starter for Scotland because they've got good strength in the back row. But I've been very impressed with him in the two matches against Saracens. He's a Jason Wyatt to, to my eyes. So if he gets a game, game time, he'll he'll impress. And the shock, well, I've, I've already alluded, I think Italy might get their one win against Wales at home. Could I, could I just mention one thing? Because I wasn't really serious about Alan Wynne-Jones being a player to watch. I do think that Ben White might be a very, very good player in the making. And I'd be if if he gets a decent number of runs or he gets a, a decent amount of time on the pitch to join the Six Nations, I think he may well be quite eye catching. That's a good one. Do you think he'll actually get a chance to Six Nations? Um, there are people in Scotland who think he'll be picked ahead of Ali Price. 
Okay, that would be very but, interesting. But, but, but whether that's first up or deeper into the tournament, who knows? But I, th- I he looks as though he has a bit about him. Yeah, yeah. And, he's got and, a golden touch, hasn't he? Things yeah, and, when and he plays. Scotland have just such a fantastic tradition in scrum halves. And if this bloke lives up even even 80% to what's gone before, and then he'll be, um, he'll be a handful. Well, on the France-Italy front, we've got a full house of France wins in the Predictions League. Yeah, the Predictions League always fascinates me, especially now that yeah, the four of us, Jerry, are part of submitted all our predictions for the entire rounds. Jerry, you're on a team with Scott Hastings, Jonathan Davis, Will Greenwood, and a couple of others. So, yeah, stay tuned, and obviously you can play along at home. Jerry, are you at Twickenham this weekend? I am. I'm very much looking forward to it. I left after the South African game just frustrated, disappointed, and genuinely was not in any rush to go back and watch a live game. Would have preferred to watch it on TV. So if they were playing poorly, I could just turn over or switch it off. Yeah. But now with the change of coach, I like what I'm hearing. I I like uh, the messages about Sinfield. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to uh, to the match uh, at Twickenham. Yeah, I, I can, in fact, yeah, I can't wait. More reason for optimism. Well, thank you very much for joining us again. And yeah, enjoy Twickenham on Saturday. And let's hope for an end to the England-Scotland rock, as someone said, one in five. So let's hope for an England win to get the Six Nations and the Steve Borthwick era started in the right way. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Rugby Paper Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use and recommend the show to your friends. The Rugby Paper is available to buy every Sunday. And to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe through our print, digital and online options at therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions. That's therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions to get all our content for as little as 14p per day.